Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of August 12, 2019. On this week's episode, we recap the weekend series against Oakland, in which we saw Ronaldo Lopez and Lucas Chilito And even Ross Detweiler pitched well, but the offense didn't show up. What's going on with the offensive production in the second half? And do the A's have a blueprint that the White Sox could follow in future years to be competitive? We'll preview the upcoming series against the Houston Astros, which should be a joy to watch as the Astros are one of the best teams in Major League Baseball. Our guest this week is Paul Seiler, who is the executive director of for USA Baseball. If you didn't hear, he just hired Joe Girardi, which I know will make some White Sox fans jealous. Paul explains how that hiring came to be and who he plans on inviting to be on Team USA for the Olympic qualifier, including the possibility of a couple White Sox prospects. We'll recap the week that was in the minor league report and answer your guys' questions in P.O. Sox. So let's get started with what worked over the weekend and what clearly didn't work for the White Sox. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Man, the Oakland A's sure had the White Sox number this season. Yeah, I'm happy that they got out with one win because even in the game that they won uh, 3-2 to two on Saturday, you know, they, they had some nice moments. They played some good defense. They pitched well enough. But when it came to the offense, they were lucky to get the runs they got. You know, Larry Garcia barely winning a, a review or, or, or 
his stolen base at second, barely surviving a review. Then he steals third and takes home because the throw gets away. Tim Anderson scores from first on a single because he was in motion. Uh, you know, plays you wouldn't count on the White Sox receiving. It kind of reminded me of like a football game where a couple of trick plays, you know, make the difference or like a a fluke bounce or some, you know, a pass. Hits the referee and bounces off and uh, ends up in an interception uh, being taken back for a touchdown. Things that just aren't replicable. And uh, yeah, I think that's when it comes to the White Sox playing these teams that are contending, especially teams that are throwing good right-handed pitchers against them. Kind of seems like it's going to need that kind of uh, luck. You know, some good stuff, you know, creating your own luck and then also uh, getting some breaks you can't count on to win these games. Yeah, Oakland finished 5-1 and one against the White Sox in 2019, and they outscored them 32-8. to eight. So, no, these games were really not that close, except for the White Sox win, uh, as Oakland uh, really put the beat down on the White Sox in 2019. The positives, though, from this weekend, and let's start with the positives. Ronaldo Lopez and Lucas Giolito pitched well enough for the teams to win, Jim, and it does it really does appear that Lopez has figured out what was wrong in the first half and he's looking really good in the second half. Yeah. Lopez, he had a weird starts where he didn't, um, you know, get much in the way of swinging strikes. I think he only had like one through the first five innings. He ended up with four, but, uh, you know, so when you look at that kind of output and that kind of, I guess, um, you know, lack of dominance pitch to pitch, you might think there are some problems, but then, you know, reading Susan Slusser, the A's beat reporter for the San Francisco San Francisco Chronicle, uh, she talked to some A's after the game, and Mark Hanna said that uh, you know Lopez's fastball was really hard to pick up. There was some deception that was working for him. Uh, he said that they uh, yeah they never taken so many fastballs in the zone before that he just for whatever reason was not comfortable standing in against him. So I mean maybe he only got four swinging strikes but maybe he got more um, called strikes than a pitcher normally would or foul balls that a pitcher uh, you know, normally couldn't count on uh, based on where he was locating or, or, you know, how the swings against him were looking. But yeah, it was just a, uh, um, it was an unusual start, but at the same time, um, you know, you kept waiting for the, uh, it reminded me of last year where, you know, you look at the peripherals and say like, oh, the swing and miss rate isn't there, the strikeout rate isn't working, but uh, for whatever reason, you know, week after week, he never paid for it. And maybe that's part of his identity. You know, it's a hard identity to really forge and maintain, but, you know, there is something to that based on him having stretches of this kind of success before to where, you know, it doesn't look pretty or it doesn't look like traditional dominance, but uh, for one reason or another, maybe just his unusual build and the way that he throws 98 late in the games uh, from kind of a, a shorter right-handed uh, delivery that maybe just fools hitters a bit, and he's able to get by without this kind of, uh, you know, like Lucas Giolito-like uh, swing and miss stuff. Yeah, so far in six starts in the second half for Ronaldo Lopez, he has a 2.13 ERA. His FIP is at 2.87. His expected FIP, though, is at 4.46. So that kind of touches on what you were discussing, Jim, uh, as far as maybe some luck being on Lopez's side as teams are making contact but not really hard contact. His home run per nine uh, is minuscule. Only 0.24 home runs per nine innings right now for Ronaldo Lopez. His war, according to Fangraphs in the second half, Jim, 1.3. So there may be an outside chance here for Ronaldo Lopez to backdoor getting to two war, at least on fan graphs, 
2019. So hopefully he can continue this pace. It's been six really good starts from Ronaldo Lopez and much needed after his really rough first half. Yeah, he gave up some hard hit balls, but they were, you know, kind of lower to the ground. Um, yeah, there was a line, uh, like a one hopper that deflected off of Brayu, and there was another line drive that Larry flagged down in center field and another one to right. But other, you know, it, it wasn't regular hard contact. It was more ordinary contact, routine flyouts, uh, a couple double plays that worked in his favor. So uh, they were putting the bat on the ball, but he wasn't getting, uh, he wasn't finding the barrel. So, yeah, that could have been just one lucky night, but. There might be something to him just, you know, when he's when his fastball is moving the way it has the last few weeks and, and how hard he's throwing it, that, yeah, maybe there is a strange profile of mid-rotation success that maybe we can expect from him in 2020. Well, Trevor Bauer does discuss that in the book, The MVP Machine, understanding your opposing hitter's swing plane and learning how to throw your pitches to avoid the barrel. So, I mean, that is a skill that starting pitchers in Major League Baseball are trying to learn. So, yes, you will give up hard contact. But as you mentioned, Jim, if Lopez can continue learning on how to miss the barrel, uh, I think he can be a little bit more consistent like we've seen in the second half so far. Uh, but like I mentioned before, it is a, it's a great sight to see from Lopez after he really struggled in the first half of the season. Now, moving over to Lucas Giolito, James Fegan of The Athletic over the weekend wrote about how some of the White Sox players – uh, especially the younger guys like Giolito, are fighting off fatigue and how they are preparing for the dog days of August. And, well, Giolito didn't look tired in Sunday's game as he struck out 13 in six innings. He had one bad inning in the fourth, which he allowed a two-run homer, but that was it. And Giolito on the season has 171 strikeouts in 136 and two-thirds innings, and he looks like he's going to surpass 200 strikeouts this year. And I know that he's getting a bit tired, but looking at his second half numbers, which are not as good as first half numbers, but I wonder, Jim, you know, a lot of people are making, you know, the second half that, wow, he's really falling off the pace. He's starting to get tired. I'm wondering, is the second half of Lucas Giolito his new floor moving forward as a starting pitcher? Are you talking like the 4.17 ERA? I think that's what he's at right now for the second half. Yes. Yeah, that seems reasonable. You know, I think uh, you know his, his first half being an all-star first half, you know, it always kind of sucks when you see a guy, you know, come out post uh, 11 wins in the first half or you think that he's on pace for an easy 20 wins, and then he ends up somewhere in 15 and 16. And you think, what went wrong? You know, what, uh, you know, is he, is he another, somebody who fizzles at the finish and you can't count on him? And, you know, when I think when you have the kind of first half that Giolito had where he was, uh, you know, had a long stretch, like more than a month of an ERA in the ones, you know, that's, that's probably just a little bit out of his reach. But, yeah, 4.17 seems like a good bad month for him or like a good unimpressive stretch you know when you look at his era being uh six last year and seeing that kind of just uh uh you know mediocre uh or worse than mediocre it was just uh substandard um you should have been replaced wasn't and to go from that to being disappointed by a 4.17 era that's you know that's uh progress it's a weird form of progress but it's progress just the same and you know, he did uh, have a, a good start against the Mets as they were getting on their run. And, um, you know, Detroit was, yeah, meh, but, you know, given Detroit's offense, but he got the win there. And then he, you know, it shows up against Oakland. So the schedule's firming up on him. And, and the last, uh, 
you know, he's faced four good opponents in four of his last five starts, and he only had really one bad start to um, you know talk about, and that was the four homer game against Minnesota. So, uh, yeah, it seems like uh, I'm guessing the schedule firming up on him will be one reason why he's going to be like closer to you know a four ERA than a two ERA. Uh, but uh, I think yeah, he can kind of uh, push through it, push through the fatigue, push through the regression and the stronger schedule and, and you know, keep his ERA around 3.5. Uh, and then I think people will be happy with it, even if, you know, there is a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a letdown. I think when you get to the end of the year and you realize what Giolito contributed and he, you compare that year over year to what he contributed the year before, I think it'll become quite clear just how big of strides he made. Yeah. Last year, according to fan graphs, Lucas Giolito was negative 0.1 war. He's at 3.7 war in 2019. I mean, he's going to have a four plus war improvement from 2018, which is absolutely terrific. And if that is his floor, his second half of the season where he's at 4.13 ERA, uh, maybe even slightly below, that's still someone, if he is consistently like that for 30 plus starts, could be a three war plus pitcher, which is what the White Sox desperately need as they are rebuilding the starting rotation. Yeah, it's, it's even a bigger jump when you look at baseball reference war. Negative uh, 1.3 last year, 4.0 this year. It'll be higher than 4.0 with the start coming up, but yeah, that's... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> five? Five war jump? More than that, really yeah. see that. Yep. <laughs> Again, he's the most improved player in all of Major League Baseball in 2019. And again, there are some fans that are just worried about second half and, oh man, is he regressing? I don't think he's just regressing. I just think this is his floor. And if this is his floor where he's a three-war pitcher because his ERA is in the very low fours, you got to be happy if you're a White Sox fan. With knowing that Dylan Cease is starting to adjust to the league and Renato Lopez is pitching really well and maybe he's found something that clicks for him and that can carry over to next season and knowing that Michael Kopech is returning from his Tommy John surgery and the White Sox could add another starting pitcher in the offseason, it's nice to have someone anchor the starting rotation like Lucas Giolito and have a good understanding on what he could bring to the table that you can count on while everyone else is trying to figure out what their new normal is. So that's why I ask, is second half Lucas Giolito a normal floor for him? Because I think we have a good understanding of what his ceiling is, Jim, and we saw that in the first half. Yeah, I think you know if you're using it as a range of outcomes where like maybe a really good Giolito season is like a, maybe what a 2.9 ERA and then uh Mediocre, you know, assuming health, you know, assuming this is just within the range of normal performance given a healthy Giolito. Yeah, it seems like, you know, ERA in the low four is given his arsenal, given that he can succeed with, uh, you know, his fastball velocity is maintained around 94 to 96. He's got a changeup that gets swings and misses. He's got a slider that gets swings and misses. So he should be able to, on any given day, combine two of those pitches to get through six innings. And I think that's a, um, you know, that's what you want out of a starter. Maybe he doesn't have the quite electrifying stuff uh, that you know makes him a, a true number one starter. But you know, the White Sox have done really well with a bunch of number twos before. And uh, you know, if he ends up being one of those and Lopez ends up looking like a number three or a good number four, uh, then, yeah, that's a really good – I mean, that's a really good trade return for Adam Eaton, first of all. But also, uh, you know, you're, you're 
two-fifths of the way towards a, uh, a rotation that can win and you know, hopefully cease clicks. And you mentioned Kopech. And really, I think when you look at the White Sox entering the offseason, um, just one big pitching acquisition, you know, not Manny Banuelos, but, you know, Garrett Cole is the obvious candidate and he would fit perfectly in this rotation. He'd fit perfectly in every rotation. But I mean, like in terms of just, you know, I guess, cost effectiveness, what he would upgrade over for the White Sox and, um, you know, how they're little they're spending otherwise, it seems like a really perfect fit worth exploring. Uh, that would be the one. And, uh, you know, nobody should get their hopes up based on the way they designed last year's uh, Machado pursuit to finish in second place. But, yeah, it's it's just uh, as you mentioned, they're filling in a really nice rotation around that. And if they got a centerpiece starter, uh, it just seems like uh, last or this year's problem of having two and a half to three vacancies in the rotation. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. you're looking at maybe one question mark, and that one question mark could be filled by Kopech. It could be filled by Carlos Rendon if he gets healthy in the second. You know, you have a lot of upside already in here. Dane Dunning maybe coming back. You got some intriguing options in house, and then you know if they add a little depth on the outside or you know however it happens, just like they have a bunch of ways to solve that spot over the course of the season. All right. So do you feel good, White Sox fans? Do you feel warm and fuzzy? Talking about the starting pitching. Okay, let's bring it back down to earth. Let's talk about the offense. Because uh, the second half, their league rankings, when it comes to position player war and fan graphs, in the second half, the White Sox position players combined for negative 0.1 war. That's last in Major League Baseball. Home runs, they have hit 23, last in Major League Baseball. Their walk rate is 5.4%, last in Major League Baseball. Their strikeout rate is 27.1%, second worst in Major League Baseball. Their ISO is .117, last in Major League Baseball. Their weighted runs created plus is 73, last in Major League Baseball. Their batting average and balls in play, their BABUP is 323, that's fourth in Major League Baseball. And uh, there was a good, uh, as far as response, when I tweeted this out from Why Am I Here 1922 is a Twitter handle. And regarding that BABA, uh, and they astutely made this point in the second half, the White Sox have the lowest hard hit rate in Major League Baseball, but they have the most infield hits. And they're 27th in line drive rate, and they have the highest ground ball rate in Major League Baseball. So the infield hits is really what's boosting that bab up. So if it wasn't without the infield hits, uh, maybe these numbers even look worse than they already do. Uh, but looking even at the 2018 offense, which the White Sox offensively were terrible, and you look at what they're being projected in 2019. For the position players last year in 2018, the White Sox position players were worth 8.3 war. In 2019, they are projected to finish at 8 war. Last year, they hit 182 home runs. This year, 176 home runs. They're not going to reach the walk rate they had last year where they were last in Major League Baseball at 7%. They're currently at 6.3%. They have decreased their strikeout rate by half a percent. But their ISO has dropped from 160. Their weighted runs created plus last year was 92. They are on pace to be 87. And again, the BABUP we mentioned, they were fifth last year in BABUP in Major League Baseball at 304. And right now they're at 321, still in the top five. But just going down these numbers, Jim, from 2018 to 2019, and this is still considering the breakout year for Yohan Makata and Tim Anderson's excellent first half. 
there's no progression offensively from this ball club from last year. Yeah, that's what that's what I was thinking when you're going through those numbers and thinking that this is with Yohan Mankata looking like a fully formed Yohan Mankata, and he's not helping the big picture. You know, it's not his fault, but just like that, his season is not helping the big picture is really remarkable. James Feagan had another stats. He was writing about Harold Baines's, uh, the, the Harold Baines celebration and how his long career of above averageness, you know, got him to the Hall of Fame and, you know, a lot of people outside of uh, the White Sox organization and people who independently evaluate uh, Hall of Famers and, you know, really don't have anything against Harold Baines, but they panned the selection because, you know, he didn't really have a peak. He didn't really make... Uh, a massive impact on the game. He was just very good for a very long time. But then James made the case that when you look at how White Sox DHs are this season, uh, their slash line this year, a 171 batting average, a 260 OBP, and a 297 slugging percentage from the DH. <laughs> what? Yeah, and that's with Jose Abreu being like below average, but like Jose Abreu as a DH boosts all those numbers. Like, I'm not entirely sure how Rick Connor, Kenny Williams would be satisfied with what's taken place this year offensively as a unit. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, when, you know, when Sunday's game came around and I was looking at the schedule and I'm in New Hampshire this weekend and I saw that Casey Mize, uh, Detroit, the number one overall pick last year and Detroit's top prospect, he was pitching for Erie, you know, about 20 minutes south of here. And I went to see that game because the White Sox were facing Chris Bassett, you know, a, a tough right-handed pitcher. And, you know, we talked about it on the show uh, last week where, you know, he said, like, it was it was nice how they performed against Detroit, but when it came facing Oakland and three tough right-handed pitchers, this would tell us a lot more about how the offense looks. And, you know, after the, this three-game series, I decided I'm going to watch Casey Mize pitch. I, th- I think I'm going to learn more about how Casey Mize looks for Detroit than I'm going to learn watching the White Sox offense flail against Chris Bassett. Sure enough, they get shut out, and you look at the weekend of work, and the White Sox drew three walks, and they struck out 29 times. And that's really the big issue. I mean, Eloy Jimenez had the nice uh, opposite field homer, and that was the one, I guess, boost to their ISO. But when it comes to you know their ability to get on base and keep the line moving against credible right-handed pitching, they can't do it. And you know that's why I, I was a bit down on Tim Anderson's return. Um, you know, not down, I guess, but a little bit like uh, diminishing or or downplaying the impact he would make, just because he doesn't help in any of these categories. I mean, he got a couple of in- infield hits. You know, to add to that uh, ground ball and infield hit total and, and that batting average on balls in play you mentioned. But when it comes to these, uh, you know, these these stats that are really holding the Sox back, the walks, the strikeouts, uh, the lack of impact power for those strikeouts, uh, he doesn't really help in those categories. And I guess to, you know, even tie it up to, you know, what we're talking about with how many, you know, two wins above replacement players they have, you know, it, it's going to take a lot uh, uh, a lot of effort for the White Sox to not only get 11 two wins above replacement players, they're going to need to find guys who have a different shape of those two wins because if they're all like Tim Anderson and they all, you know, don't walk and they all strike out a lot and they all kind of get lucky with contact and they play decent enough defense and they get to two wins that way, that's probably not enough to build a credible offense either. I know of one person within White Sox fandom and White Sox Twitter that is going to applaud what I'm going to say next. That's why Nick Magical, even though he has a very unique offensive set, will not be that helpful to the White Sox offense. Because he does not walk. He's a contact guy who does not hit for power. 
Yeah, he's going to help with the strikeouts. He will help with the he's strikeouts. He's going to help in that yes. department. He might help with on-base percentage. It really depends on his hit tool. I, I think he's so unique that he might help boost the White Sox OBP. I think it's going to take maybe, you know, as we talked about with you know them getting the two wins above replacement with Madrigal, you know, it might take him a couple years to find his form where he does draw those walks. He's drawing you know a fair amount of walks in Triple A to start, but I think he's going to show need to show pitchers that uh, you know attacking him in the zone, you know, he'll make them pay. Uh, I think it's going to be he's going to have the burden of proof on him starting out that uh, you know pitches in the strike zone will be turned into singles and doubles, and he'll have to show that first. And I don't know if he'll show that right away, but yeah, that's that's my one you know as, as you mentioned with Madrigal, that is the reservation there that he'll help in that one category, and the White Sox can use a help in any of those categories. But when it comes to the other two, um, you know, and and maybe he'll help with base running and and yes, uh, when it comes to the with... offensive numbers, the hitting numbers, I don't think Madrigal is going to help in that. That area, but defensive yeah. base running most definitely. Yeah, and, and he'll help the offense, you know, marginally uh, base running. You know, that he'll add some value there. But uh, yeah, when it comes to on base percentage, I think he'll create a different kind of on base percentage, and he'll help keep the line moving because his strikeout rate is directly tied to his OBP. Uh, you know, as one skill feeds another, so I can see him maybe helping. You know, I guess helping the walk rate a little bit in a different way. But yeah, it's. Uh, it's the combination of strikeouts and walks and power, and and he only affects one of those columns. And you know, if they had a, if they had maybe like three Madrigals who really cut the strikeout rate to where they turn into the Kansas City Royals during their heyday, okay, their contact team that forced the you know forced defenses to react to them, I can see that being a weird kind of success for them. But there aren't many Madrigals right now. I guess you know Andrew Vaughn might be somebody who helps knock down the strikeout rate if he's able to reach the majors in the uh, form that his college bat suggests he'll take. But uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of uh, uh, there's a long way to go on on all three of those categories and the guys that they have. You know, Luis Robert, he should help the power. He might not help the walk and strikeouts immediately. Like all these guys that are coming up, really can only be tasked with helping one category at a time. Yeah, Vaughn. If you look at your future right side of the infield, being Magical and Vaughn, Magical helps cut down the strike rate. Vaughn helps with the ISO and walk rate, but. Neither of them helps in all three. Vaughn, Vaughn might help with strikeouts. Like if you replace, like say the DH production or wherever you're you're counting on, with a with a strikeout rate that's like in the high teens, that'll help. I mean, it's not going to like cut it down like Magical cuts it down, but I think he'll help. Okay, we'll see. I'm still skeptical on advanced breaking pitches, but again, I'm I'm waiting to see how he handles Double A next year. Yeah, that's fair. That's uh, fair because his junior in college. I just that was the go-to pitch for teams to get him out, and they were pretty effective on getting him out at times, uh, especially with curveballs that are up in the zone and sliders low and away. It, it's just something to to pay attention to moving forward as far as this White Sox offense going to twenty twenty. Because right now, I mean, I like Gilmer Sanchez's glove, but the White Sox need someone better at second base offensively. I don't know what to make of Jose Abreu. He's either really hot or he's really cold, but he can help out still with first base and DH because the White Sox have holes at both. Uh, they definitely need someone that is a better bat in right field. They definitely need someone that's a better bat in center field. They have to figure out a way to keep Tim Anderson and Yohan Makata healthy so they could play you know, more than four-fifths of the season in 2020. And I don't know what to make of James McCann. I, I think this is... 
kind of a flukish year for him offensively. He's never produced these numbers before, and he is regressing in the second half, and maybe he's finding his new floor. But Wellington Castillo's numbers, I mean, come on, man. What are we even doing here? Why are you even watching Wellington Castillo with the White Sox right now if he's going to swing like this and it looks like minimal effort on his part when he's playing the game? Uh, just Miles, just cut your losses and move on and just have Sebi Zavala or Yerman Mercedes catch or even Zach Collins for the rest of the season. I mean, he's pretty pitiful. But, okay, so center field, right field, second base, backup catcher, DH, I mean, that's like yeah. five bats that Rick Hahn's got to have to find. Oh, yeah, and if he's not calling up Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal until next year, um, I think those bats will eventually be there, but counting them as bats, you know, not just players or prospects or rookies, but actual bats to bank on, that's probably a 2021 thing. Yeah, there isn't one player right now that they can count on that could help them with those three categories and across the board. Strikeout rate, walk rate, and ISO. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, with those, with, you know, players, I think generally, if you can get two out of three, yeah, I think you're doing good. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, like say Elo Jimenez, that's, I, I think a, a big disappointment for him, you know, and he's a rookie and he should be, you know, get a lot of rope and, you know, get mm-hmm. his time figured out, especially since he did the Sox a favor of, you know, signing an eight year contract. But when it comes to his, you know, overall production, you know, the strikeouts are up, the power isn't quite there. The walks aren't quite there. Like he's not helping, in any one category hugely yet the way that you might think that, you know, when you looked at the way he just demolished minor league pitching at all levels, uh, no matter what, whether he was a hundred percent or 90% or 80%, he hits, you know, as long as he was in the lineup, he hit, uh, and then seeing him struggle the way he is. And he's, he's somebody who should have helped in two of those three categories. Like he shouldn't be striking out as much as he does he should hit for more power than he has. He's not, He's been uh, below average by his standards in both categories, and then the walks just aren't there because they've never really been part of his game. He's been an average hitter, not a guy who gets on base by, you know, making pitchers throw seven, eight pitches a, uh, a plate appearance. So that you know that's disappointing. And I think when you see somebody like Jimenez struggle, then when you have a guy like Robert coming up or Madrigal coming up, and they look even more exploitable, or that they have even more to prove to major league pitchers before you can count on them being above average major league offensive players. Uh, yeah. Then I think, you know, having Jimenez's struggles right in front of you makes it harder to pencil those guys in, even though they should be, you know, as we, as we think about it in terms of wins above replacement, they should be average by the end of the year. But as, as, you know, when you, when you delve into these offensive struggles where you just see like how many of the same guys have the same problems. Yeah. That's just harder to see them helping the white Sox dig them out of it. And, you know, setting their debuts back until 2020 and you know, whether it's April or may or whatever, um, you know, just kicks that back further. We've been focusing so much that the white Sox must address starting pitching in the off season. But I think what we've seen in the second half and looking at the roster and knowing which guys are more than likely not coming back in 2020, Rick Hahn has quite a bit on his plate to address in the offseason offensively more than I was thinking at the All-Star break. So it'll be interesting to see on how he spreads that out as far as his resources and money that he's going to be allocated to spend in the offseason and how much that he spends to address and maybe get an extra starting pitcher and what he can do to help out offensively because the pitching staff, they're posting mediocre numbers for the season. 
but they're closer to the middle of the pack in Major League Baseball as far as when you combine the starting rotation and the bullpen. Yes, they can approve, and but they have some internal options right now. But when you're talking about the worst offense in the second half, and it is not close, and they are not going to approve upon their numbers from last year, that last year a 100-loss team, uh, you really, as a team and as a front office, have to go to the marker board and really have to start addressing and maybe have some serious conversations about this team's offensive philosophy and who do you want in the lineup if you're going to make this transition from rebuilder to contender. Because right now, this is not working, and your season numbers are not going to look good this, even with Yohan Makata having his breakout year and Tim Anderson maybe having his best pro year. Uh, so we be interested to see on how Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams address this in the offseason. Uh, one last note I wanted to touch on after this Oakland series. You know, the Oakland Athletics, they're projected to win 89 to 90 games this year. They're going to be in a tight rate for the American League wildcard with Tampa Bay. And whomever finishes second in the American League Central because the Indians have done it. They have caught the Minnesota Twins in the AL Central. What a wild ride that has been uh, for both Cleveland and Minnesota. But, you know, since 2012, when the A's had five mediocre seasons from twenty from 2007 to 2011. From 2012 to 2014, the A's won two American League West titles and they earned a wildcard spot. Three years after that, they were bad, finishing last place. Now they rebounded last year, winning 97 games. Again, they're on pace to win 90 games this year, and they could possibly make it back into the postseason as wildcard. And it just seems that the A's have this pattern, Jim, of having competitive windows that are open three to five years. And, you know, they too, like Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams, have an ownership group that really refuses to spend big money or carry a league average payroll. Is the A's model one to keep an eye on for future seasons that the White Sox could possibly utilize? Uh, I mean, theoretically, it should. When you look at a team like the A's or a team like the Rays, who you know do a lot more with a lot less in terms of resources, and especially like the A's, like you know the Rays have had a top farm system and whatnot, and and they've been seen as the I guess the cradle of great baseball minds in their front offices, and Andrew Friedman goes and. Uh, Hyam Bloom is you know, a, a top um, uh, general manager in waiting. You know when you look at future GMs and so forth, and they have this just great uh, atmosphere. Baseball minds like Billy Bean. You know theoretically his uh, I guess star peaked in you know the 2000s with Moneyball and those A's teams like the Hudson Mulder Zito teams. And uh, when they didn't get to the World Series and when the Red Sox eventually you know I guess took some of the Moneyball tactics and one you know, broke their drought and and the A's kind of faded to the background. That was when Bill uh, our Billy Bean's star more or less faded and he became more of an ordinary new school or like he was like the old school new school GM like he was you know he, he wasn't exciting nobody really talked about him uh he's not really a GM anymore it's David Force now but just you know he's still the the point person the face of the decision making when it comes to the A's roster but uh just the amount of churn that they do the amount of like uh they, they were supposed to go into like a hard rebuild and then they decided to you know pull out of it and and uh, it didn't quite work and they um you know they they won 69 games and like had a 70 win season here and there. They had, the, they had that kind of uh, 
window you're talking about where they're just mediocre, but they never bottomed out and they never tried bottoming out all the way. They they were looked like they're going to, and then they started investing more, and people thought, you know, what are they doing? Um, but they forced the window back open, and they're doing it with guys who are, you know, not really, you know, stars now. Like Matt Chapman is basically a star now, but he wasn't when he was coming up, and uh, you know, guys like uh, you know Jed Lowry when he was good, you know, he just came off the scrap heap or was just a veteran signing who offered them something. You know, they turned Marcus Semyon to a shortstop. So, I mean, they've been able to develop young guys better than their ceiling suggested. They're able to get guys like, you know, Steven Piscotti and Chris Davis, you know, just from other teams, add them to their mix without giving up a whole lot. Uh, they're just really good at being aggressive about guys evaluating their options. They I mean, they leveraged the hell out of the opener when their rotation fell apart. So, you know, they're good at scrambling. They're good at uh, making things up as they go along. And so, I mean, that should be a model for a team like the White Sox who aren't, you know, re- ready to spend huge yet and don't really want to compromise uh, this this wave of prospects coming up. They, you know, they still find ways to get guys, you know, who are contributing. The White Sox keep ending up with Adam Engel and Daniel Palka and Dylan Covey and like they just keep they never have enough new guys. And whenever a new guy doesn't work out like AJ Reed, that's why I'm you know, AJ Reed's kind of a popular target and, and a punching bag, but I'm I'm a little bit reluctant to make fun of him or or underscore his uh, I guess just how ineffective he was just because the White Sox should be looking for more guys like that. Ideally, like the A's, they have, they find guys who have had major league success and they just try to polish them up and make them the better forms of themselves. But uh, yeah, I would just like to see more new guys. Uh, and I think the, the A's are really good at that. And the White Sox, if they're going to replicate that model, they just have to be a lot more aggressive and, and not give so many at-bats to guys who are just proven not to be average major leaguers. Yeah, Chad Pender is someone that didn't scare you, but he hits the ball hard and he had a good series. Matt Olson, gold glove first baseman that could hit 25 plus homers a year for you. I mean, you pair them up with Matt Chapman and you got your corners of the infield taken care of. They're good at platooning. You know, they, they don't uh, ask thing, uh, ask things of guys uh, that, uh, you know, they've proven to not be good at. Uh, they have a, a good lineup against lefties. They have a different lineup against uh, righties, you know, so they're able to mix and match and that's just their willingness to find find guys and uh, understand what guys can't do and then try to find guys who can complement that. The White Sox have tried to do those platoons at times and they've turned out disastrous. Um, but I just I think it comes down to talent evaluation, just uh, the White Sox front office being behind when it comes to uh, evaluating and finding uh, hidden gems and uh, probably the coaching too. And, you know, as we've seen, talked about endlessly with the opener, just not having really any kind of sense of uh, experimentation or thinking that certain methods are beneath them and nothing should be beneath the White Sox. I'm sure there are many Sox fans listening to this right now, screaming at their phone or their car radio. No, I don't want the White Sox to be the A's. But in the last decade, the Oakland Athletics have made the postseason five times. The White Sox in my lifetime, Jim, have made the postseason four times. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> like, if, if I had to pick one or the other, uh, I would pick the Oakland A's model because, well, yes, uh, you never have hope of them getting the premier free agent. They find a way. They scrap it together and they have these nice little three-year stretches where they surprise you and they end up in the postseason. And yes, they don't have the best postseason success. But in the American League, I mean, when you got stalwarts like the Yankees and the Red Sox and 
Uh, the Houston Astros, uh, it's always going to be a tough challenge moving forward for any American League team that's not one of those three teams uh, to get through the gauntlet. Uh, so I, I give Oakland a lot of credit and just something that I thought of as far as if this rebuild doesn't go according to plan, it, can the White Sox kind of shift and follow an Oakland A's model, uh, especially if Jerry Reinsdorf refuses to spend big bucks? And they should be. It's just uh, more a matter of the front office just not being so attached to players who aren't working out. Now, one model I know all White Sox fans hope that the team follows is the Houston Astros model because they are really good and they, I think, are doing things the right way and I think they're building a juggernaut. So let's preview that series next as they come to the South Side Monday through Wednesday. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way to buy tickets. Search sports live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd as they built the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. And if you take a look at the App Store, SeatGeek has over 50,000 five-star reviews as they have excellent customer satisfaction as they rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10 when you're in the SeatGeek app. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets for White Sox games as I used SeatGeek this past weekend to go to Saturday's game. And the reasons why I love using SeatGeek, they have an interactive seat map so I can really pinpoint on where I want to buy tickets. Uh, and I can compare them really easily uh, other to other parts of the stadium. The green dots are good deals. The red dots, those tickets are overpriced. And that really helped me. Plus, SeatGeek has a pricing option where you can include pricing that includes all fees for tickets. And you're not surprised or have sticker shock when you go to the checkout uh, for your tickets. That's also a very nice feature. And the best part is that for our listeners, SeatGeek will give you $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE. That's promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. And again, the Chicago White Sox are facing the Houston Astros at home. The Astros are 77-41. and 41. They are first place in the American League West by 10 games over the Oakland Athletics. They are tied with the New York Yankees for the best record in the American League. And I believe that's going to be really pivotal as we inch closer to September as both those teams, the Astros and the Yankees, would love, love to have home field advantage during the postseason. In the last 10 games for the Astros, they are 8-2. and two. On the road, they are 34-26. and 26. And the last time these two teams played was in Houston. And the White Sox surprisingly split the four-game series. The pitching probables for this series, Monday night, it is Zach Granke coming back to the south side, facing Dylan Cease. On Tuesday, it is Garrett Cole against Yvonne Nova. And on Wednesday, Wade Miley against Ross Detweiler in the battle of the soft-tossing left-handers. Jim, looking at the series, all I can say is this is going to be rough. I felt a lot worse about it until today when the Astros actually did blow a, a late lead to Baltimore after they beat them, what was it, 23-2 to on Saturday? And then they uh, they they almost uh, um, 
they, or they almost came back and, and beat the Orioles again late innings with a little league homer. With a, uh, if you missed it, the uh, Baltimore's right fielder somehow threw the ball, he fielded the ball in the corner and then threw the ball into the corner. Like I think the <laughs> the wall behind him interfered with his release and he ended up spiking the ball into the side wall and having to collect it again. So, you know, seeing the Astros almost beat, but the uh, Orioles came back and actually won, and they beat the Astros in a Justin Verlander start. So that made me feel a little bit better about the White Sox chances. Not a whole lot better, but a little bit. Uh, so I think uh, if they if they won if they won twenty three to two and then beat like the Orioles ten to three or something like that, then I would have felt like uh, this is invincible. But you know, the Avon Nova did beat Garrett Cole earlier this season. So yes, there's that. Weird things happen, but yeah, the the White Sox. When you see how they're facing off against uh, right-handed pitching, and as long as uh, Yohan Moncada isn't there, it's just a whole lot harder to envision that. Good luck, Dylan. This is going to be a true test for you to see where you have progressed after your first six starts in the major leagues. Because uh, the last time the White Sox faced the Astros, Jose Altuve wasn't available. Carlos Correa just got hurt. Uh, both of those players are back. It looks like the Astros are back to being 100% healthy in their lineup. Uh, we're going to see Jordan Alvarez for the first time. He was not available in the first time the White Sox and Astros played. Uh, so this offense is a lot stronger than it was when the White Sox faced the Astros earlier this season. So this will be a good test for Dylan Cease uh, to see how he can hold up. Uh, especially against a veteran like Zach Greinke, which Greinke really struggled in his first start with the Astros against the Colorado Rockies where he gave up six runs. So we'll see how it goes between the White Sox and the Astros. Again, we'll be recapping as far as that series on Sox Machine Live on Wednesday night. But let's move away from the White Sox for a moment as baseball will be returning to the Summer Olympics in 2020 at Tokyo. And Team USA made a big hire to help them qualify for the Olympics as Joe Girardi will be managing the squad in the Premier 12 tournament in November. How did this hiring come to be and could any White Sox prospects possibly possibly play for Team USA? Well, let's find out as Paul Seiler of the USA Baseball, he's the executive director, joins us next on the Sox Machine Podcast. A quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one, or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device, whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. 
Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. In a calendar year, a country will win the gold medal in the 2020 Summer Olympics for baseball. Very exciting to see the sport return to the Olympic stage and for the Olympics to be hosted in Tokyo will bring maximum excitement to the event. Could you imagine USA versus Japan in the Tokyo Dome to win the gold medal? I get amped dreaming of that matchup. But first, USA has to qualify for the Olympics as they have a significant tournament this upcoming November called the Premier 12. And Team USA has made a very surprising hiring. Leading the qualifying charge will be Joe Girardi as he'll manage the team. Who will be on the team and how does Team USA qualify for the Olympics? Well, we have a very special guest on the show to tell us more. He is the executive director and CEO of USA Baseball. It's Paul Seiler. And hello, Paul. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, good morning, Josh. Thanks. Good to, good to be here. So Joe Girardi, man, if you wanted to make a big splash in hiring a manager for the Premier 12 tournament in November, you couldn't have picked a better candidate. Why do you think Girardi is a good fit and how did this come to be? Um, well, Recently, we, we actually added Scott Broches to our, our staff, who, as you know, has a lot of uh, Yankee connections. And, you know, in talking to Scott, um, as we were kind of considering candidates, he said, you know, have you thought about talking to Girardi? And I said, well, it's a name that's out there. And he said, look, I think this is a guy we need to talk to. And so we went and we sat down with Joe. We met him in New York and myself and Scott and our director of national teams, Eric Campbell. And, you know, right from the minute that we sat down, it was very apparent that um, Joe gets it. And, you know, that's kind of gets what, um, you know, the patriotism, the responsibility of USA across your chest. Uh, he did play uh, as an amateur when he was in college on, on a national team, um, was a cut from our 84 Olympic team, um, has a son who's playing at a very high level. So he's, you know, connected, you know, circa 2019 of, you know, the kind of that, you know, rising 19, 20, 21 year old and some of the players we're going to be talking about in terms of you know, what their motivations are and, and the characteristics and profiles of today's players. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was funny when we talked to him, he said, Hey, I got to go talk to my family. And it was, it was a great first kind of pause. Um, but then when he talked to his wife, Kim and, and their, their three children, they were like, yeah, you got to do this. And uh, every interaction with him to this point has just um, confirmed our decision to have him manage. And now we got to go and give him the right players. And hopefully he and his staff can get us qualified for the Olympics. Now, the natural question that fans will have, and we heard a little bit from the media as well during the press conference, is what happens if a Major League Baseball team calls after the season and wants him to manage their ball club? In Chicago, Paul, I'll have to tell you, both sides of town are very interested in Joe Girardi. Uh, But it sounded like from the press conference, Girardi is still committed to helping Team USA qualify for the Olympics. But in the case that if a Major League Baseball job doesn't come to be, uh, Paul, would you consider having Girardi manage the team in Tokyo next summer? Well, yeah, and that was been our plan all along, Josh, is like, look, to get to Tokyo, there's a, it's actually a three-step potential process. Premier 12 is the first chance to qualify, uh, but then there's a secondary and a potential third chance um, in early part of next year. So the approach we took on this is like, look, we want to get to the Olympics, and we would hope that you would want to manage in the Olympics, but first you got to get us there. And so we've mm-hmm. kind of made it an all-in um, proposition is, yeah, let's put a staff together that ideally stays together from hopefully start, which is the beginning of qualifying, to 
end, which of course would be ideally a gold medal um, in Tokyo next summer. So the Premier 12 tournament, I don't know much about the tournament, but just looking at the countries participating, man, this looks like the World Baseball Classic. It's from November 2nd to November 17th. And how does this format of the tournament work, and how does Team USA qualify for the Olympics through Premier 12? Okay, Premier 12, it's a relatively new event by our international federation, right? So our FIFA, if you will, which is the World Baseball Softball Confederation. Uh, First time it happened was um, in 2015. It operates on a World Cup cycle, if you will, or an Olympic cycle once every four years. And by definition, Premier 12, top 12 ranked teams, according to the World Baseball Softball Confederation. Japan's number one right now. We're number two. And then you go through through 12. One of the unique things about this event is seven of the 12 are from our continent, North, Central, South America, and the Caribbean. So the way the tournament's set up is three pools of four. Our pool will be in Guadalajara, Mexico, with Mexico, the Dominican Republic, and Holland. We have to go top two in that pool to then move on to the Tokyo, what they call um, Super Round, and then the finals. There will also be a pool of four in Korea. And there'll be a full pool of four in Taiwan. So the top two from Taiwan, the top two from Korea, the top two from Mexico all get together in Tokyo. You play then who you have played, if you will. That'll give you a common record of five games because you only bring the record of the team that you travel with out of your pool. And then you'll be ranked one, two, three, four, five, six. You'll play a gold medal game, a bronze medal game. The top finisher from our continent qualifies for the Olympics. So in theory, we could finish, I'm just going to use, and I don't know that this math actually works the way that the pools are set up, but the United States could finish fourth. But if we're the top finisher out of our continent, let's just say Japan wins it, Korea is two, Taiwan is three. If we finish fourth, but we're still the top finisher from our continent, we qualify for the Olympics. And the same is true for Asia other than Japan. So Japan is an automatic as the host of the Olympics. So really, in essence, only five more countries are qualifying for the games because it's a six-team tournament. Two of those are guaranteed spots for the Americas. So it's going to be hard to get there. When you look at our world, it's funny, I I used that reference to FIFA a second ago. You know, when the pools come out for the World Cup and FIFA, ultimately they say that's the pool of death, you know, the hardest pool. You know, I would argue we're in the continent of death because when you look top to bottom, relatively speaking, Canada, U.S., Mexico, Dominican, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Panama, Cuba, and only two of those are going to go to the Olympics. It's going to be... A really the the most probably the most difficult part of this is going to be to qualify for the Olympics. And that pool for Premier Twelve, you mentioned Holland, Mexico, and Dominican Republic. Man, that is a tough tough group to get out of. Well, yeah. To your to your point earlier, twelve teams. There's not an easy pool, you know. So it's the top twelve teams in the world. Everybody's going to have you know the the pros and cons or the plus and minuses of where you're at, your pool, and some of those things. But you're right. It's going to be difficult just to get out of Mexico. There's no doubt about that. So for the qualifying roster, what's the plan on finding players for the team to help qualify for the Olympics next summer? So Premier 12 is in November, right? So it's November 2nd through 5th is our first round. And then if we, we you know, advance out of there, we get on a plane, go to Tokyo for the, for the next phase of that. We'll have training camp in uh, Phoenix uh, around the 20th of October through the 28th. And then we fly to Guadalajara. We'll play some exhibition games there. This is non-40-man roster players. So there's no 40-man roster players on this. And um, matter of fact, we're having a team meeting in uh, Phoenix on Sunday, uh, a staff meeting, to talk about players. We've already offered a couple of invitations. It's not an all-prospect team. It's not an all-veteran team. 
it really is a puzzle. And the chore that we have is to find the right pieces for the puzzle to hopefully have us be successful. Does having past Team USA experience help? And I ask because White Sox fans, one of the top prospects is Andrew Vaughn, who has played for Team USA. Is he someone or the type of player that you would consider? He is. And you got another guy over there at second base and Nick Madrigal. So, you know, um, yes, Team USA experience, previous experience absolutely helps. Um, you know, but there's so many factors that go into a player either being um, promoted by the club or um, uh, a club saying, yeah, we're going to we're going to allow the player to have that opportunity. Obviously, pitching is a whole different subject in terms of, you know, innings pitch, time of the year, all of those things. So every conversation, every exercise has a unique look to it based upon a lot of different factors. And, um, you know, we fall in love with players every day and then we fall out of love when they're not available. But one of the benefits here in the United States and, and, and in the minor league system is the pool is deep. And uh, ultimately, we w- and it's a 20-man roster, so it's a smaller, a little bit bigger roster. So, you know, we're very confident that we'll find the right 28 guys um, to represent our country. Now, obviously, the first hurdle is qualifying for the Olympics in Tokyo. But looking long-term with the relationship between baseball and the Olympics, in 2024, the games will be in Paris. And even though there are baseball fans mm-hmm. in Paris, they don't have the facilities currently for baseball. And in 2028, the Olympics come back home to American soil as they will be held in Los Angeles. So I'm assuming baseball will be an event for the LA Summer Olympics. I would like to see baseball and softball be permanent Summer Olympic sports and offered at every Summer Olympics, Paul. How likely is that possibility? Um, I think the success, and you you were dead on, so I don't know that we'll see baseball and softball as a part of the games in Paris. There's some limitations and considerations there that just don't fit for the team sports and our team sports. But I think you're dead on in terms of L.A. and the popularity that those sports will have in L.A. as well as in Tokyo. And that, you know, that could and should and hopefully will serve as a launch point for baseball and softball being a permanent part of the games. When you look back, and I know, you know, it's 20 some odd years now to Atlanta in 96, you know, I think baseball was the third highest attended event there behind like track and field and soccer. So. Um, yeah, to have those games back on U.S. soil in 2028 will be a huge um, support and, and boon to both of those sports to hopefully have them um, be solidified as, you know, full-time Olympic program sports. Yeah, in nine years, just imagining playing at Dodger Stadium, right? If that were a possibility for the Summer Olympics, that would be a, a very cool event. And you mentioned as far as some of the other tournaments after Premier 12, Will Team USA be participating in those second or third tournaments uh, in 2020, even if they do qualify? If we qualify, no. So we own, we own, or own maybe not, we, we have the rights, uh, we're granted the rights to host an America's only qualifier in late March of next year, which we'll do in Phoenix. So the six teams out of those seven in the Premier 12 that do not qualify for the Olympics in November um, will be afforded another opportunity to have a continent only, if you will, an America's only event. And that'll happen in late, late March in Phoenix. Two other teams will be added. So that'll be an eight team tournament. Um, and the winner of that event goes to the Olympics. The number two and three from that event get one more bite of the apple or shot at the apple, if you will, in an event that'll be in Taiwan right after that event. So the Americas is guaranteed two spots. We could, as a continent, get up to three as could Asia, depending on who wins that last qualifier. Um, but at the end of the day, if we qualify in November, we that's it. We're done until next July. 
players will go back. We'll regroup. Um, and I, I would think that, you know, your roster in 2020 will be very different than this fall. Guys will end up being called up to the big leagues, injuries, traded, whatever the, the different variables and factors that affect a player's ability to participate or not will happen. Um, you might have some repeats. Um, but, you know, chances are the roster will have a very different look if we're able to qualify. Well, the last time baseball was in the Olympics was in 2008 in Beijing, which Team USA won the bronze with South Korea winning gold, beating Cuba. Mm-hmm. It's always a very tough tournament, and I'm really looking forward to this event. So good luck creating the roster, Paul. We are hoping for the best in November for the Premier 12 tournament, as it would be great to see Team USA back in the Summer Olympics for baseball. Amen, Josh. I appreciate it. We're on the same page, buddy. Cascade Platinum every night Saves you water every night Come meet me at the dishwasher base. See, hand washing dishes at your sink Uses about four gallons of water every two minutes Naughty, naughty sink But with Cascade Platinum at your dishwasher Four gallons of water gets the whole job done So the flow of that H2O And change your routine Do it every night with Cascade Platinum A surprising way to save water Welcome to the Minor League Report. We'll start in Charlotte, where Luis Robert has suffered through his first mortal stretch of the season. He went just 3-for-28 with 14 strikeouts over his last six games, spanning two Pennsylvania series against Grand Wilkes-Barre and Lehigh Valley. Conversely, Zach Collins is seeing early positive results from his attempt to solve the contact issues that Major League Pitching exposed. He's hitting 314 with an OPS around 1,000 in his last 20 games with the Knights during his demotion, but more importantly, his strikeout rate is below 20%. Before his Major League audition, it was running over 30%. As always, numbers at AAA require a huge grain of salt because of the baseball, but strikeout rate is one of the few columns worth watching closely. Speaking of strikeout rate, Nick Magical is only hitting 243 over nine games at Charlotte, but he's drawn five walks without a strikeout so far. Down in Birmingham, let's update the OPS leaderboard for the Barons outfielders as we follow their quest for 700. Only 19 points separate the three. Luis Gonzalez leads the way at 673. Blake Rutherford had a decent week to climb to 668, while Luis Wasabe has fallen to 655. Birmingham's pitching has been decent, but not from the guys with higher expectations. Alec Hansen's finishing another lost season. Lincoln Hensman's ERA has risen to 6.47 after 12 starts at AA. But John Park has posted a 2.78 ERA while averaging six innings a start over his first nine innings with the Barons. His strikeout rate is still a problem. Also, Bernardo Flores returned to Birmingham's rotation after completing his rehab stint with a strained oblique. Steel Walker should be in Birmingham, but the logjam of outfielders seems to have blocked his path for this season. He might have to settle for Rakin and Winston-Salem, where he owns a four-digit OPS over his first 10 games in August. Andrew Vaughn's offense has been a lot quieter. He's got bat control and strike zone judgment on his side with six walks and six strikeouts over his first 11 games, but he's hitting just 243 and slugging 405 so far. 
Jonathan Stever might be wheezing a little bit as he crosses the finish line. He's thrown just eight innings over his last three starts, including a laborious three-inning affair against the Fayetteville on Saturday. And he's already up to 127 innings in his first pro season, so he doesn't have much more to accomplish in what's already been a successful campaign. Canapolis, on the other hand, looks like it's out of success stories. Lennon Sosa looks like the only one who stands to gain from his work with the Intimidators. The numbers across the season aren't great. His average is 241 with a 283 on base percentage. But his command of the strike zone has made strides and he's hit 30 doubles as well. He can say more about his 2019 than Bryce Bush, whose rehab stint in the Arizona League was cut short after a game. If not Sosa, then it's probably Jason Billos, a 13th round project from Coastal Carolina, who has been successfully stretched out to starting after spending the first couple of months of the season confined to the bullpen. That's not saying much. Meanwhile, Mike Rodolfo has surfaced as his rehab stint seems to have more staying power than Bush's. He played three games in the Arizona League, his first action since elbow troubles resurfaced in late April. He's 3-for-10 with the homer, double, three walks, and four strikeouts over 13 plate appearances. And if he can get through the rest of the rookie season healthy, he's a candidate to catch up on playing time in the Arizona Fall League. That'll do it for the Minor League Report. Now let's tackle your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and also helping support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And joining me again on the podcast is Jim Margulis to answer your questions. And Jim, we got a lot of questions this week. Uh, so let's start with Socks and Swimming on Twitter, and they're asking if offensive production is up across the league. Explain to me, aside from the rotation of quadruple A players they use, how they have not seen any uptick. Also, how is it that there is literally no conversation about Luis Robert coming up compared to Aloy at this point last year? Is it apathy? I can't really explain that. Next question. All right. Tom Paints is asking, also the White Sox seem to have players who get hot for a game or two and then cool off. Rookies seem to progress at a snail's pace while teams like Toronto have multiple prospects up not sucking. What are the White Sox doing wrong here? I don't know. Next question. Pete Chapman is asking, how is it possible in a league where teams are hitting more home runs than ever that the White Sox are unable to find someone that could hit home runs in DH? Basically, I'm looking for a Daniel Polka 2018 type of guy. That should be a reasonable expectation to have in a system. I agree. Next question. Michael is asking, what is Rick Hahn's reasoning behind not giving guys like Nick Magical, Luis Robert, and Zach Collins at bats at the major league level? Why does he care about service time for Luis Robert when waiting just burns years of control for Yohan Makata, Tim Anderson, Lucas Giolito, etc., especially when he struggles early? I don't know. Next question. David is asking, Rick Hahn reset expectations this week. He regrets saying that he sped up the rebuild through early trades and output stains in the five-plus-year category. Is this rebuild looking more like the Royals than the Astros and Cubs at this point, pulling off just a couple of playoff years? 
Uh, kinda. Next question. Rick Hahn's live Q&A was pretty soft this week. It looks like they've settled in that Luis Robert becoming tired as the excuse for keeping him down until May. And this question comes from RV on Patreon asking for your thoughts. I got, you know, there, I have a lot of thoughts. And, and I think uh, a lot of these questions, you know, in succession raise a lot of thoughts that the White Sox have. And, and, and RV mentioned that Q&A, if, if you didn't hear, Rick Hahn was, I did a live Q&A with uh, Chuck Garfine and the NBC Sports Chicago crew on their podcast. And it was, you know, he, you know, it was a lot of Rick Hahn talking. So it's just a lot of, he says, augment about uh, 15 billion times. But when it comes to like the rest of his you know, answers, more, most of them were, you know, his usual breaking down questions into, you know, reasonable chunks and then uh, reassembling them and presenting them and, you know, not really saying a whole lot. Um, you know, he did offer a little bit about Zach Collins, like that was helpful, saying that Zach Collins is working on a swing and that they sent him down to uh, you know, work on closing up uh, some of his contact issues and attack, uh, attacking some of the way uh, Major League pitchers attacked him. And so that was helpful. He did offer some things, but... One of the uh, big things he talked about, and for some reason the NBC Sports Chicago's social media team broke this out, was that he was complaining about White Sox uh, Twitter, and he said that uh, yeah, something like Han, you know, Han takes down Twitter trolls or something like that. That was the overline on the on the post, and you know, Han complained about White Sox Twitter and how some people are too negative, and that uh, some people would rather see the rebuild fail so they'd be right than actually see it all the way through. And, you know, I get where he's coming from when it comes to, you know, I imagine it's got to suck reading about him. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, there are probably people who use really terrible language to describe the job he's doing. And I, I would not condone that. And, and uh, I think it's unfortunate that people have to read that about themselves. And so when it comes to that, you know, I imagine that it's got to be tough being him. Uh, and, and, yeah, and especially when you have kids and such who have to hear about your the job that they're doing, and just you know, it's probably complicates your life in a lot of ways that even you know being well paid and prominent doesn't quite make up for. But you know, I so I get that. But when it comes to like the reasons underlying the negativity, you know, all these questions that were sent to me by all you wonderful listeners and readers that they're all good questions with no easy answers. And they're all questions like other organizations are answering. Like we talked about the A's and just how they find guys who are off the screen, like Jerickson Profar, you know, like they, they get use out of him, uh, even though he hit the end of the line elsewhere and just, you know, injuries interrupted his rise with Texas. But, you know, they find a way to use them. They find a way to use these guys like the Yankees. The Yankees have more talent on their DL, uh, the IL, uh, dollar for that char, uh, than the White Sox have on their roster and when you look at the guys who are producing for them like Mike Tockman and Gio Urshela and uh you know trying to think who else uh oh Luke Voigt you know they getting a, a random good performance out of him like Aaron Hicks tanking him from the twins and getting great performances out of him you know you Cameron look at, Mabin. Yeah, Cameron Mabin you know getting him and 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 getting great production out of him in limited paths like all these guys they bring in are amazing. <laughs> they do great things, and they're all guys that the White Sox could have acquired one way or another. Talkman was a, uh, a Rockies product, I, I believe, originally, and they dusted him off and found him. But like all these guys that the Yankees are using to succeed, 
uh, a lot of these guys the A's are using to succeed were guys who were available and didn't cost a ransom in prospects or didn't cost, you know, didn't didn't require a top five draft pick or didn't require, um, you know, huge contracts. They're just guys that they, you know, other teams are able to dust off and, and get production out of. And so, uh, you know, when you look at just how bad the White Sox are and, you know, the, the atrocious production of the DH and all the numbers you mentioned about how none of the numbers are lining up for the White Sox except for infield singles, it just, you know, that's a, that that's creates conditions where it, you can't help but be negative. You know, you can't help but see the, uh, you know, I guess the whatever the opposite of rosy is, <laughs> you, know, uh, the, you know, those, you know, maybe uh, crap colored glasses or something like that, where you just... <laughs> <laughs> you look at just, you know, you can only see like, well, this isn't going to work out. Like, you know, I, I wrote on Twitter a little bit, like I, I didn't want to respond too much to it because it feels like, you know, Han did say that he appreciates people who, you know, assess the situation, apply critical thinking and then say they don't like it. And here's why. And I believe that, you know, I, I qualify for that and you qualify for that. And, and you know, people, you know, most of the people in the White Sox blogosphere qualify for that. But when it comes to like, you know, valuing the White Sox and just how bad they are, you can, you can just you know I guess reflexively reject every move they make as this isn't going to work out, and you'd be right probably two thirds of the time, and you you'd have spent like five percent of the time you normally would thinking about the White Sox, and that's a great return on investment. Like there's really no, uh, you know, the White Sox mm-hmm. aren't providing a whole lot of reason for White Sox fans to really think about why this might work, you know, using the mix they have. Now, if Luis Robert comes up, great, you know, Nick Madrigal, LA takes next. There are reasons why the White Sox will make it work, but they've also failed enough ways, and they failed to find even adequate players in a lot of positions to wonder, like, if this first wave or, or this next wave of prospects does not pan out, and if LOA doesn't quite take the steps to be the, you know, all-star player they're figuring, where are they going to get production from? Where are they going? To, how are they going to avoid this being a, a relapse of the first rebuild? And right now, they're not showing that they're any different than they were the first time. So, you know, that's when you know when, when Han was complaining about that. I get where he's coming from, and it's it's got to be tiring. But at the same time, there's just no real, you know, there, there's nothing for White Sox fans to hang on to. There's there's nothing um, showing that they're any different in evaluating other teams' talent or evaluating their own talent. They've just been able to build up their farm system with you know, trading Chris Sale and, and Adam Eaton and getting top five picks, like all these, the way they've built their farm system is the very hard way. It's, uh, you know, losing a lot and getting top five picks. It's, um, it, it's, you know, selling your best players to get younger players. Like they're not, they're not creating guys out of whole cloth. They're not, uh, dusting off any, but, you know, uh, taking, you know, getting like a Craigslist buy on any of these, uh, players, uh, and, and shining them up and, and refurbishing them and making them look like new and, and getting way, you know, way more value out of them than they paid. There's just nothing of that going on to where um, you you feel great about the White Sox finishing this thing off. So, yeah, and, and you don't have to be you know terribly negative about it. Like all these questions we got, you know, were fact-based questions. They were good questions when you look around the league, you know, surveying the league and saying like, how come the White Sox don't have adequacy? And there's really no way to answer it aside from just not working hard for it enough or not like, you know, not uh, not being desperate enough or, or urgent enough or however you want to phrase it to drastically change the way they approach it. And they, you know, it just seems like Rick Hahn is tired of not having the benefit of the doubt, which I understand, but he also can't get the benefit of the doubt until he does something and they haven't. 
Yeah, Luis Robert. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that say, well, Luis Robert is coming up. Luis Robert was expensive. Yeah. Luis Robert was $26 million to him, $26 million to Major League Baseball and taxes. Nick Madrigal was a top five pick. Andrew Vaughn was a top five pick. Eloy Jimenez was acquired via trade. Dylan Cease was acquired via trade. Michael Kopeck was acquired via trade. Yohan Mikado was acquired via trade. Lucas Giolito was acquired via trade. And then, like, capital T right. trades. Capital, you know, not these minor trades. These were trades they had to they had to hit on. This would have been the perfect season to see some of their projects and with the player development, some of their success stories. But they're not even they're not calling them up, or they're not as good as we thought they were. Like Zach Collins, right? You you've given this guy a lot of opportunities to prove that he's a catcher, and he's still in AAA. And I understand why Rick Hahn says that he needs to work on his swing. But as you heard in the minor league report, that Zach Collins has made great strides so far since being sent down. And again, why in the world are we still watching Wellington Castillo? For God's sakes, yeah. Or even like failing Collins, like your mean Mercedes, like you mentioned before. Yeah, call him up. Why not somebody like him? See, see if he goes nuts for a few weeks. The Yankees excel at player development. The Houston Astros excel at player development. The Los Angeles Dodgers, where the hell are they getting these kids now? Dustin May, Gavin Lux, and they're going to pair them up now? Is Get them called up to make a run into the postseason uh, to enhance as far as their infield? Max Muncy comes out of nowhere and hits 35 home runs, and they make some adjustments to Cody Bellinger, and he may win the National League MVP as he hits 50 home runs this year. It's absolutely crazy on what the top teams are doing and Travis Sawchick tweeted this out over the weekend and what he tweeted was analytics is not creating parity in Major League Baseball it's creating a bigger gap the teams that have invested heavily in analytics the New York Yankees have the biggest staff in player development in Major League Baseball their player development staff is 105 people they just recently hired away from driveline uh, one of their pitching instructors to make them the director of pitching. They have created a new position in the front office that focuses just on approving pitchers to adopt what the Boston Red Sox did with Brian Bannister. And I agree with Travis. I, it's one thing to be competitive and try to win the American League Central. But it is really hard to see in how this rebuild for the Chicago White Sox is going to be able to go toe-to-toe against the Yankees and against the Astros. And look at Cubs fans right now and how they feel when you bring up the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers make it feel like the Cubs window is going to close just because the Cubs just do not have the firepower all of a sudden to go up against Los Angeles Dodgers. That's where teams are making all these investments. And what I have to ask Rick Khan is, what the hell have you been doing the last three years? During your rebuild, this is where the White Sox should have been focusing, Jim. This is where they should have been investing all this money in new technology and expanding their player development staff, increasing their player development staff. And for him to say now, well, maybe I misspoke and maybe this is going to be five to seven years, whenever this run starts, no. This run better start producing winning teams by 2021 or you got to get out of town. 
You had had plenty of time, and there's too much prospect talent on the White Sox by 2021 that will be in Chicago for that team to be a losing team. They have to be a winning team by 2021, and if they are not, the White Sox have to go in a new direction at general manager. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, I guess the one thing I would say in Han's defense is that maybe the White Sox are just so fundamentally weird that no GM can really make a difference. You know, if it's Jerry Reinsdorf and Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn and, and just like Don Cooper, you know, I don't, I can't imagine like a director of pitching above Don Cooper or alongside Don Cooper, you know, coming from driveline or some other, you know, outside source. I mean, they, they hire guys like Everett Tiford and, you know, Danny Farquhar, I think is taking that kind of Brian Bannister type role, which is great, but you know, they're playing catch up in that regard. They're not, uh, you know, breaking new ground or, or going, um, you know, outside or, or trying to, you know, like the twins, you know, they, they went heavy on college coaches. Um, you know, that's a way to break new ground and we'll see, you know, I guess, seeing how their, uh, their AL central lead, uh, evaporate on them. You know, maybe, uh, they're not quite the early success story that we thought, but still they're doing something different. Uh, the White Sox are just kind of playing catch up and meeting the bare minimum on analytics. Like you hear about using edgertronic cameras to, um, you know, capture pitching grips with Dylan Cease and Reynaldo Lopez, and that's cool. But you know, the Astros have like seventy-five mm-hmm. of those cameras or something like that. You know, set up on on, on their uh, you know their campuses and and their parks and such. They've been doing this you know a lot longer and a lot more thoroughly. And yeah, it's you know what you mentioned about just you know not spending those years uh, ramping up player development. It seemed like they ramped it up with scouts. You know, they they really talked about beefing up their scouting department, but. You know, that's only, you know, one, we don't know whether that's actually going to make that big of a difference because a lot of teams like the Astros are cutting scouts because they feel like Trackman, you know, does a lot of the work or at least like, you know, at least maybe more than half of the work. And uh, then humans can come in and, and compare like cases and figure out, you know, distinguishing, I guess, a, a pool of players that have been provided by numbers, you know, versus scouts digging them all up. You know, so there's that, so there's that, you know, they might, they might be zagging when the league is zigging, but are they just, you know, zagging into a ditch or a dead end where other teams have already turned around? Uh, that's, it's hard to tell. So yeah, it just, um, there's just a lot that's weird about the White Sox and, uh, you know, I, I, whether it's Han leaving or, you know, just, it's, there's a lot that's just ingrained and, unable to change and I just yeah it's hard it's just institutional rot at this point more than anything else it's not any one guy which makes it really that's that's why Han I think has gotten off so easy I think for a lot of his you know you know not having won in the season yet is that Kenny Williams absorbed a lot of his flack and I think as long as Kenny's there he'll absorb a lot of the flack but I think just as long as you know Reinsdorf is there overall and just you know they can't you know, they have this top-down approach and they don't overhaul the front office I, th- I think that's what I'm gonna uh, you know, when we talk about the Astros coming in, you're going to hear a lot about how the Astros bottomed out and how the White Sox right now resemble the Astros at their worst. But I think the thing to keep in mind as you see all these numbers and see all these comparisons of records is that the Astros overhauled their ownership and front office, and the White Sox did not. And I think that's just a big missing, you know, that when you omit that detail, it makes the comparisons over... Mm-hmm trajectories and win-loss records rather meaningless. You're right, Jim. All these questions are very relevant and they are based in fact. I don't find any of these questions negative. 
I, I think these are the pressing issues that the White Sox must address if they are going to make this transition from rebuilder to contender. And, you know, people look at these questions and look at these reactions and say, you're just being negative. I'm, I disagree. I think it's being truthful. And the truth right now is not, as you mentioned, Jim, very rosy for the Chicago White Sox. And yes, these players can click. And I am hopeful that they all click. They are super talented. And that's why, no, the White Sox must be a winning team in 2021. There is too much talent that has came up through their farm system and it be on the 25-man roster for that to not be a winning season. And Rick Hahn and the White Sox front office should still be continuing to build to that mark that they will be competing to win the American League Central in 2021. Because if they do not, or if they are not a winning team, again, I will stand firm on this, then the White Sox need to move away from Rick Hahn. He would, he would have had five years for a rebuild where Lunau only needed three years to go from 56 wins for the Astros to in the postseason. The Athletics only need three years to reboot to go from a 68-win team to 97 wins. It usually takes about three years for teams to reboot. And for the White Sox, they are exiting the third season in 2019. So we should start seeing progress in 2020. But as Rick Hahn mentioned in the live Q&A, Jim, it sounds like whatever may happen in 2020. They just don't really seem firm or committed uh, to make that a year that they want to turn this around and be, start winning baseball games. Yeah, I, I detected as well when you talk about, well, you know, with Michael Kopech, it is fair to say, like, you know, don't pencil him into the opening day rotation just because you, you don't want to put pressure on a guy who's coming off Tommy John surgery, especially the way White Sox prospects have come off Tommy John surgery. You know, you can't count on him. Like, counting on a car, healthy Carlos Rodon is foolish, and counting on a healthy Michael Kopech at the onset of the season is foolish. So I understood some of the shifting he was doing, but, yeah, there's just no sense of, you know, and I hate using this phrase, sense of urgency. Like, I, I don't like using it as a, um, you know, as a, as a, diagnosis for problems with players like you know Yohan Makata isn't showing a sense of urgency at the plate Lucas Giolito isn't showing a sense you know, like you don't know what that means you don't know what's going through their minds like that's just um they're not creating action and that sucks and it just seems more reactive and actually uh, you know diagnosing a problem but when it comes to the White Sox front office and you know they don't you're not counting on them making physical you know uh athletic reactions in fractions of a second this is just pure decision making there is no sense of urgency you don't feel like all this losing is a problem to them and they'll just be able to flip the switch when everything lines up and i i think it's yeah fans who have been following this should be very yeah i would say at the very least be very skeptical of their ability to flip the switch uh, switch and you know maybe more realistically just say no you're not going to be able to do it yeah i i dare you to prove me wrong and uh that's it, kind of where I am right now. Does that kind of fall into though, where people are saying it sounds like you're rooting for them to lose to say, ha, ha I proved you. I was right. No, I mean, like in my case, I'd love to be proved, yeah, proved wrong that this is, you know, falling on the right track. You know, I'm hoping that with one good season, like Michael Kopech bounces back from Tommy John surgery and the White Sox prove that they don't have that weird thing going on with getting elbows better, you know, and that they prove that, you know, Eloy Jimenez bounces back and, you know, Nick Madrigal is everything they say he is. Like, I, 
you know, I want the White Sox to be good. Like, I think everybody who writes about the White Sox wants them to be good. Our podcast traffic would be through the roof if the White Sox are good. There's no reason for, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to site traffic, interest, everything like that, like, and uh, support from fans and listeners and readers. Like, there's no reason why we should want the White Sox, why we should want to be right more than we want the White Sox to win. There, there's no economic argument for it. There's no, yeah, there's no argument for, for just human enjoyment you know it's just it's a weird i think it's a defense mechanism maybe there are like a few cases where you know just they they're they seem more like bots on twitter that just this is purely just uh, something programmed to have the most negative reaction and i don't take those people seriously but most part people who are like negative like we're negative would love to be proved wrong we're just looking at you know just the uh history of decision making and just seeing not a whole lot there that's renewable we, we, you know, they, like they're, I think the, the way they built the team is basically just getting the most out of resources they've had. But when it comes to renewable resources, renewable energy for the team, they're not producing that and they haven't been able to. And that's what stunned rebuilds before. And uh, they're going to have to prove that they can do it. And I, I hope they can. But uh, until they do, there's just no benefit of the doubt to give. We didn't forget that 2015 and 2016 existed. There's some that have, and Chris Bassett didn't. Chris Bassett doesn't. Yeah, and he will <laughs> never. Sounds like, but just at the beginning of the show, we start with two positives and one negative. Ronaldo Lopez and Lucas Giolito developments are very positive, but their positive developments are not enough to overcome the White Sox negative in the offense. And that just seems to be a recurring issue since Rick Hahn has taken over as general manager of the Chicago White Sox since 2013. There have been positives, but they have not been so great to overcome the negatives. And the negatives have been too heavy of a weight, and they continue to drag down the Chicago White Sox. And I agree with you, Jim. It sounds like Rick Hahn is in a very comfortable position for someone that is going to have seven straight losing seasons as a general manager. And I can't think of anyone, any other team in any professional sport where that seat wouldn't be red hot right now for anyone else in that situation. Cincinnati Bengals? <laughs> Maybe the Bengals. Well, the Bengals still make it to the postseason. Yeah, they have a couple of <laughs> Yeah, so, but yeah. I mean, yes, they are mediocre, but they do make it to the postseason. Yeah, the Browns, a lot of turmoil there. Yeah, so that's probably the closest I can think of off the top of my head. The last, looking it up, there was a general manager from 1993 to 2001 for the Pittsburgh Pirates that oversaw nine straight losing seasons. Sid Thrift? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So there you go. Hopefully we are not discussing Rick Hahn losing or tying that record of nine straight losing seasons, or we will officially lost our minds. But uh, I'm sure there are some people wondering how our reaction would be towards what Rick Hahn had to say. And there you go. I think we have covered everything. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll still try to cover everything fairly. We will point out the positives, but we have to point out the negatives as well, because you have to look at the whole picture. You just can't ignore the negatives because a lot of times, especially with the White Sox, the negatives really don't go away. And if you ever want to know what the answer is on how this rebuild won't work, you sometimes have to pay attention to the negatives. But thank you guys so much for asking your questions. 
But that will do it for this edition of P.O. Socks. Thank you guys so much for submitting your questions this week. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And also help support the site and show at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where our Patreon supporters get an ad-free edition of the show we also get to answer additional po socks questions for them they get an opportunity to ask questions to our guests in which they only listen to those responses they also get extra content as well from the writing from the website so again if you like our work and you want more go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today and that will do it for this edition of the socks machine podcast thank you guys so much for listening If you just discovered the podcast, you can describe to us in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.